This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Friday, August 14th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. It is a brand new world today. There's a new ice cream truck jingle from Good Humor and Rizza. A new dinosaur species was discovered in England. Some books of classic literature are being published under new names. And a new use for the little free libraries. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. When Marianne Evans began writing fiction in the mid-1800s, she did so under the pen name of George Eliot. The famous author of Middlemarch did so to avoid the stereotypes associated with women authors, that they wrote largely light-hearted romances, and the fact that books written by women would not be read by men, thus restricting the audience. Evans also had a prolific career as a critic and essayist that she wanted to separate from her fiction writing, and she had a fairly scandalous open marriage that she may have wanted to keep from being associated with her writing. But now, Middlemarch and 24 other books by women published under male pseudonyms are being released under their real names for the first time as part of the Reclaim Her Name campaign being run by the Women's Prize for Fiction in honor of the 25th anniversary of the prize. Novelist Kate Moss, who founded the Women's Prize for Fiction, said of the project and the selected authors, quote, They kept their names hidden for all sorts of different reasons. There's the idea of hiding the fact that you're a woman because it's not appropriate for women to be out there in the public sphere. But it's not very long ago that Malala Yousafzai was shot by the Taliban for daring to go to school. So there are obviously some women writers who are hiding their identity through fear of persecution, either by male relatives, but equally by the state. They're writing works that would get them into trouble. End quote. The team selected the 24 authors from a long list of over 3,000. Quoting The Guardian, Some of the books, like Middlemarch, are well-known, including A Phantom Lover, a ghost story by Violet Paget, who wrote as Vernon Lee. And Indiana, a romance from Amatine Aurora Dupin, the 19th century author better known as George Sand, who famously scandalized society by wearing male clothing and smoking cigars in public. Others are being brought to the forefront after forgotten decades, such as Keynotes, a collection of feminist short stories from 1893 that includes open discussions of women's sexuality. The stories were written by Mary Bright, who was known as George Egerton. Francis Roland Whipper published The Life of Martin R. Delaney in 1868 under the pseudonym Frank A. Rollin. She was the first African-American to publish a biography. Fatima Farahani published poems in 19th century Iran as Shaheen Farahani. And Petri, who wrote as Arnold Petri, was the first African-American woman to sell more than a million copies of a book and joins the list with Marie of the Cabin Club, her first published story from 1939. End quote. The whole collection is being released for free as ebooks so that as wide an audience as possible can enjoy them, and physical box sets are also being produced and donated to libraries. A new species of dinosaur has been discovered on the Isle of Wight off the coast of England. 
Named the Vectera Venator in Apennatus, it lived during the Cretaceous period and belongs to the same clade of dinosaurs as the Tyrannosaurus rex, as well as modern-day birds. The team at the University of Southampton, who have led the study, believe the dinosaur could have been up to 13 feet long, based on the four bones that were found on a beach in the village of Shanklin last year. The mouthful of a name, Victera Venator in Apennatus, was chosen in part because of the air sacs found in the bones. The bones from the neck, back, and tail were, quoting Gizmodo, full of air gaps, like the ones modern birds have to keep their skeletons light. These air sacs also form part of the respiratory system, acting like an extension of the lungs to make breathing more efficient, but with the side effect of making some parts of the skeleton fragile, end quote. That explains the arrow part of the name, but here's where the rest comes from. Vect comes from Vectus, which was the ancient Roman name for the Isle of Wight. Venator means hunter in Latin, and Inapinatus means unexpected. So basically, the name means the unexpected air-filled hunter from the Isle of Wight. And, well, I guess compared to that, Victero Venator Inapinatus is actually a bit more succinct of a name. The bones were uncovered during three separate discoveries, first by Robin Ward, a fossil hunter from Stratford-upon-Avon, then by James Lockyer from Spalding, Lincolnshire, and finally by Paul Farrell from Ride, who said he was just kicking stones around when he uncovered the fossils. Chris Barker, who led the University of Southampton study, told the BBC, quote, The record of theropod discoveries from the mid-Cretaceous period in Europe isn't that great, so it's been really exciting to be able to increase our understanding of the diversity of dinosaur species from this time. You don't usually find dinosaurs in the deposits at Shanklin, as they were laid down in a marine habitat. You're much more likely to find fossil oysters or driftwood, so this is a rare find indeed, end quote. The running theory so far is the Vectero Venator lived a bit north of where it was found, but that after this particular dino died, its body washed out into the shallow sea. The paper on these fossils will be published soon, and the team at Southampton is continuing to study them, while also hoping to find more fossils along the beach to help them fill in the gaps. If you weren't aware before, you have perhaps learned recently, as America has been going through the latest era of reckoning with our racist roots, that the classic ice cream truck song is apparently super racist. That's right, it is not just an annoying earworm that blasts all summer long, and sometimes in the winter, and late at night, at least here in New York City. The song, commonly referred to as Turkey in the Straw, has its origins in lots of other songs, passed down and morphed over the years. NPR credits it as evolving from the traditional British tune, The Old Rose Tree, saying, quote, The tune was brought to America's colonies by Scots-Irish immigrants who settled along the Appalachian Trail and added lyrics that mirrored their new lifestyle. The first and natural inclination, of course, is to assume that the Ice Cream Truck song is simply paying homage to Turkey in the Straw. But the melody reached the nation only after it was appropriated by traveling blackface minstrel shows. There's simply no divorcing the song from the dozens of decades it was almost exclusively used for coming up with new ways to ridicule and profit from black people. End quote. In the 1820s, the melody was given another new name in lyrics, which I won't share because even the title is a slur. And then in 1916, it was given another racist upgrade with an even more egregious title featuring both the N-word and a racist stereotype, followed by Ha Ha Ha, all just in the title without even getting into the lyrics. 
The song moved into ice cream trucks around the same time, and the reason why is because ice cream parlors played all manner of minstrel songs. So when the trucks started popping up, they played the minstrel melodies on the trucks as well. But now, Good Humor, one of the most iconic ice cream truck vendors in America in the mid-20th century, has made attempts to atone for their sins. They partnered with Wu-Tang Clan founder RZA to create a new ice cream truck jingle. Quoting Rolling Stone, RZA's jingle will be available to ice cream trucks in the U.S. via music boxes produced by Nichols Electronics starting this month. Nichols Electronics, which is based in Minneapolis, where this year's protests against police brutality and racial injustice started after the killing of George Floyd, also announced that it would remove turkey in the straw from its music boxes. End quote. In a video debuting the new jingle, RZA said, quote, We wanted to make a melody that includes all community. That's good for every driver. That's good for every kid. And I'm proud to say, for the first time in a long time, a new ice cream jingle will be made available to trucks all across the country in perpetuity. That means forever, like Wu-Tang's forever. And I can assure you, this one is made with love. End quote. And here is what the new jingle sounds like. I gotta say, my favorite part of it, I mean, other than the complete lack of racist origins, is how gentle and calming it is. This jingle is not going to be nearly as annoying to hear when it's blasting from ice cream trucks relentlessly all summer long. So really, just an overall win in every way. I like it. Have you ever seen a little free library? They're those boxes of free books that often look like large wooden mailboxes and are set up around towns by volunteers who just want to provide some free books to the community. It's technically a nonprofit with more than 100,000 book exchanges registered around the world, but lots of people set them up independently as well. Jessica McClard started noticing more and more of these libraries popping up in her hometown of Fayetteville, Arkansas a few years back. She says she was inspired by the neighborly sense that the tiny free spaces afforded and decided she wanted to create something similar, but not for books, for food. McClard had been passionate about poverty justice for years, volunteering in various ways to combat food insecurity in her hometown, so this seemed like the obvious next step. And in May of 2016, she founded Little Free Pantry, and it has since grown to include hundreds of pantries around the U.S. and more around the world, totaling close to 3,000. Now, unlike Little Free Libraries, Little Free Pantry is not a nonprofit organization and remains entirely open source, though the website does include lots of guidelines and resources for anyone who wants to start one up. And once one has been established in a community, McClard points out that it's an easy way for people to give back, even when they can't contribute that much. She told the Christian Science Monitor, quote, For a lot of people, it's difficult to write a $25 check. But when they get paid, they might pick up an extra can of green beans and put it in the mini pantry. That happens all the time. End quote. 
Unsurprisingly, the little free pantries have become exceptionally popular since the start of the pandemic. McClard says, quote, COVID has people looking to do something, and this is something that people can do. Social distance is built in, so you don't really need to be close to someone to help through these spaces. I feel like it's the mini pantry moment, end quote. Little Free Pantries is not the only project of its kind. Similar projects conceived independently have been happening across the world for years and have all ramped up in recent months. You may have also heard about the free food fridges that have been popping up all over the U.S. as well. Quoting the Christian Science Monitor, Many pantries are not intended to take the place of food banks, which are far larger and have the capacity to serve much greater numbers of people. Since mini pantries are small, they cannot stock the quantity and variety of foods that would be available at a food bank, nor are the contents of a mini pantry predictable. Minis are a gap filler, Miss McClard says, adding that mini food pantries require recipients to go through means testing to determine if they are needy enough to receive benefits. There are a lot of people experiencing food insecurity who do not pass a means test, Miss McClard says. Minis are a place people can go when they can't go somewhere else. I see little free pantries sitting alongside traditional sources of food, says Molly Harmon, a chef in Seattle who used a microgrant to build and install six mini pantries last March. That project has since ballooned to 74 pantries within a 30-mile radius of the city. Circumstances are different for everyone, and they're a non-judgmental way to get food, Ms. Harmon says. They're open 24-7, there's no ID required. It's food by neighbors for neighbors, so the likelihood of finding culturally relevant foods is higher, and it's an anonymous access point, so anyone can come and get food, end quote. And if you would like to get involved by donating, starting your own, or accessing one in your neighborhood, I will include links to both the Little Free Pantries and the Little Free Libraries sites in the show notes. One more quick hit for you. If you're looking for something fun to watch this weekend, how about the first The Fast and the Furious movie? Except compressed into 20 minutes and made on a budget of only $100. Kent Yoshimura and Kevin Ferry, a.k.a. the Budget Boys with a Z, kept it all in the familia by performing every single character themselves and doing the car sound effects themselves too, like with their mouths. Lots of vroom vroom. The actually fairly impressive homage to the movie that started it all is complete with bad wigs, toy cars, stock music, and a lot of Nas. No granny shifting here, the budget boys went for it, and hopefully we'll get to see them do the entire franchise, because this was pretty freaking funny. Link in the show notes if you want to watch. That is it for the week, though. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I am Jackson Bird. I hope you all have a good weekend, and I will talk to you on Monday.